Welcome to the Blood, Sweat and Ears podcast. Today I have Mark Robinson with me who's been an engineer on some big records and he's worked at various different studios across the UK and in Africa. Hello Mark. Hello. <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for coming and having a coffee. So uh, Mark, I'm just going to ask you a few questions about where you started out. I just want to, the kind of potted history of Mark Robinson. Mm-hmm. So how did you kind of get into the recording game? How did I get into recording? Well, I've been thinking about this and it's kind of the realisation has changed over the last few years that I think what I was doing is kind of running away from doing a proper job mm. and being with people. And I sort of realised that music was a bit of an escape for me. And it's only sort of, I know this sounds very weird, but it's only in the last few years that I've been sort of like working out my psychology and that's exactly what it was. So that is, I used to just listen to so many records in the 80s. It was early 80s, well, I left school sort of like early 80s. And I just bought lots of records. I used to go to Croydon and buy, shed loads of albums and i had a record player and i and my brothers had great record collect a great record collection so i listened to i had such a great upbringing listening to so, so many sort of records so having left school not knowing what i wanted to do which was very scary because everybody else seemed to know what they wanted to do yeah <laughs> i know that one yeah so i tried a few things out and i think i might have even gone to the college for a day and i didn't really I didn't fit in. I felt awkward. I felt socially really <laughs> awkward. I'm terrible at parties and all that sort of thing. So I just thought, I, I that's right. I got a job. I sold. Uh, I worked for a place in Rygate for a while, selling musical instruments or working in a warehouse. Stentor. Do you know Stentor Music? Was that was that by the kind the of Mel- Albert Road way or? It was in Blackborough Road. Oh, okay. And it was. I think it was by the milk yard there, and there was a place in there. And they used to import sort of violins and drum kits and things and then sell them on. And I worked there for a while. Then I got a job in town, actually, which was really good, a really great job at working for a company called Rondor Music. And they were a publishing company and they had a really established company. They're a great company and I loved it. I was I think I got the job through the stand, Evening Standard or something, and right. I answered the advert, and I went along. And it was great, and I really loved it. It was in, yeah, Parsons Green, and nice bunch of people, and it just involved me sort of being their runner in the office. And basically, I was working for the A&R guys there and driving their XR3Is up and down the King's Road. It'd and, be worse. Oh, it was great, man. I loved it, imposing up and down, soft top, put the top down and whiz up and fill the cars up. How old up were you? 20. Great. Hey, it was just, I'd arrived, mate. It was just brilliant. And then I did that for two years, and I guess they were sort of trying to... Um, Give me, they were going to sort of move me up to A&R at some point. And then after two years, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And they were absolutely horrified. And I was a bit horrified because I just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm. It was too office-based. It was too far removed from music, the coalface and doing, and me, I wanted to be, and they they sort of were really upset, I think, and I was a bit upset, and I just sort of said sorry, and there was something telling me I don't want to do this, and I left. And I tried a few other sort of 
things. And then I saw an advert, um, a friend of mine who used to work at Air in London when it was in uh, Oxford Street on the, uh, was it? Where was it? It was in Oxford Street, across where Regent Street and Oxford Street crosses okay. at the top there. Oh, was he there? Yeah. It's it Oxford Circus, I think. Yeah, and so I used he, to work on Regent Street. I, I can't uh, picture where. Yeah, it, it was at the, at the top of uh, a building, uh, just as you go up to the BBC building there on Regent Street. It was on on Oxford Street at the top. But I forget what the show, is. It Top Shops there now, or one of something on the corner. God, it's there. been a while. Yeah, there's a massive kind of clothes shop on the corner. So it was kind of there, wasn't I it? I think it was above there. It was oh, at the top. Mental. Yeah, it was at the top, and he he worked there uh, for for Air, and um, he told me about this job. Um, that was was a tape op, effectively, and you sort of worked in studios and sort of didn't come out. You just yeah, yeah, you just got a razor blade and exactly. You had very of... white skin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I didn't realise that that job existed, and I thought, well, that's because I was really fascinated with uh, the credits on records. Mm. So I always used to look to see. There were certain certain studios in London that used to fascinate me, like Wessex and places like that. And I used to look at all these studios and think, "Wow, all these great you know records were made there." And then I think it was a little while after that I saw an advert in the Surrey Mirror for a residential studio in Lingfield, and I was living in Redhill at the time, and Rygate. I was hanging around Redhill Rygate. And they wanted a chef to work in a residential studio. And I was like, oh, great, studio in Lingfield. That sounds cool. So I applied. And I went along, had the interview, and explained that my sort of culinary skills ran to sort of scrambled egg on toast and I couldn't really cook, not to the sort of standard they were looking for. But I really wanted a job in their studio. And Sandy, who interviewed me, the lady, she laughed and she said, look, wait a minute, I'll go and get the owner. She went and got the owner. You blagger. I blagged it. (laughs) I just wanted to go and have a look and really was so fascinated and interested by the whole thing. That's great. And, yeah, he he liked it and he, he liked me and we got on and he said, I like your style. It's quite funny that you've turned up. I'll give you a job for, and it was, you know, it was peanuts. Um but it meant that I got a foot in the door and I turned up there and I used to just sit in on the sessions. And um, it turned out that it was a great studio. And I told my mate who was at Air Studios about the studio and I was going, they've got this desk in there called like an SSL or something. And he was like, what? Where is this place? And I told him and he was like, wow, how did you manage to play that? And I said... I just said I went down there and introduced myself and started working for the guy. And that really was my sort of foot in the door. Um, and it was, like I say, it wasn't what I was expecting. I, I didn't know what to expect, but it was. It turned out that there was a lot of big bands through the 80s that were going there. I worked on a lot of things. The, the Infected, Jerry Rafferty was down there. Um, who were the other bands? Go West were doing stuff there. They would come in and just use it as a residential. Lock it down for a week or two. Or... Yeah, they, they, it was a it was kind of very much uh, bands coming in for long periods of time. It was somewhere that they could just go and live. It was a lovely old 15th century oh, wow. farmhouse and the studio was in a barn. 
and uh, a good friend of mine, Pete, who used to engineer there, uh, he's a lovely guy, Pete, and I used to sort of, it was kind of his understudy, really. I used to work under him. So there was somewhere to sleep if I needed to crash out, which most of the time you did. <laughs> the sessions were long. Mm. Although it depends who you work with. You know, you get bands that come in who, who had a lot of money. They didn't always work serious sessions. You know, you had other bands like Sisters of Mercy who come in and the guy would work, uh, Andrew Eldridge, he'd work all night. So you'd be working all night. But you just love, I just loved it. I loved being around the music. I loved doing anything and anything. You know, I just, I loved it, man. It was great. I'm not sure I'd enjoy that lifestyle now. Yeah, for sure. So it's a different time. And also, like, do you think, like, the way music has changed, like we were just talking uh, before we started recording about... You know, I showed you a few bits. It's got kind of like, you know, sample replacement, like VSTI bass that's real bass. Do you think now that you need to do all the things that were done because there's kind of faster routes now? So what I'm getting at is like if you had the tools we had then, would those sessions be as long? Probably not. I don't think they would. I think people would know because it was – I don't. I don't think so. I think things are so much more compact now, um, and I haven't really got a problem with it. I know there's some people out there who sort of say there aren't the records out there. There aren't the records out there that that, that, that we used to have. But I think music has become a little bit more. I know it's going to sound a bit weird, but more throwaway, a bit more kind of. It's conveyor belt. It is, and 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 then we didn't have a lot. We had. A few channels of TV. There was no internet. People didn't weren't really gaming much. Mm. It was just music and film. And watch that's all we did. Yeah, you know, music and film. Now there are so many more avenues and so many more things to keep us busy and stuff. That of course music has sort of become a bit sort of not second fiddle, but it has moved over a little bit. So of course it's going to be. I think become a little bit if you like cheapened is. But I still think there's people, depending what sort of music you listen to, I listen to a lot of sort of dance records and a lot of drum and bass sort of stuff now. And I listen, I was telling you a minute ago, I listened to it a lot of on headphones. Mm. And some of the production on it is amazing. It's great. And it's all, I think, a lot of it is down to making... It's a, it's a different thing now, you know. Um, stuff that was made on big format consoles that we used to work on does have a sound there's no two ways about it you know um and i and uh, you know it's it is what it is really and i think you've got if you if you sort of just uh, sort of live in the past and think about old you know the um records that were made it's great to listen to those old records but you've got to move on and there's a lot of stuff making sort of like stuff now yeah. i think i'm just lucky that i've managed to find there was a period i went through in 2000s that i totally fell out of love with music and i think it was the transition between the old sort of stuff rock sort of stuff and indie and punk that i used to listen to where i couldn't really find a a slot mm-hmm. and then really i gelling with it anymore yeah and i wasn't feeling it and then i managed to find a a slot on something that I really am passionate about again. The place, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about, you know, when, when you went off to the, the place on Lingfield, but 
something I wanted to touch on. We've talked about this quite a lot, you know, uh, off off mic and when we're kind of generally around each other is kind of how things have changed, you know, because you, you do a little bit of stuff uh, with the college um, and, you know, we were both alcoholics. Yeah. And I've just done, uh, I've just done an episode with Merrick on mental health and yeah. how that was kind of acceptable and encouraged and how that's kind of changed. The kids aren't really boozing no. anymore within music. Yeah. The whole kind yeah. of like sex, yeah. drugs, rock and roll yeah. thing, which is actually like super negative, is kind of dried up. But, yeah. you know, were you – obviously you were there in the 80s. And yeah. There was other stuff going on, um, a lot of kind of substance stuff as well, yeah. Yeah. especially, you know, kind of powdery type yeah. things kicking around. Um, you know, and – you you were kind of on the front line of that, but you've come out the other side and Yeah. You know, but you you kind of found that your addiction was alcohol, which Yeah, mine was is yeah. that I don't know if that's worse than oh, I guess like a lot of people that have done like harder stuff are probably dead now. Um yeah. but how how did what at what point did you realise, you know, culturally what I'm kind of getting at is like culturally alcohol is was kind of embedded in the very fabric of music and recording and everything and what, what point did you kind of realize you know had you been out of it for a while when did you kind of realize that you were like fuck like probably that's a good point actually when you say out of it for a while you mean like, out of the kind of was it did you stop kind of working in studios when you kind of that, gave up that's or? really interesting yeah i think it is something to do with that that's that, that's yeah that it was when i I had a job at Universal and I got made redundant and it was at the time that I got made redundant and then I wasn't at, yeah, and I was at home and I had my, I had a bit of um, redundancy money and it was just all, and I was sort of, and I was sort of struggling a bit to, it's a bit of the time when Pro Tools was being used a lot by then and tape had disappeared and I'd always grown up Although I'd used my, my, my Universal Studio, I was using a bit of tape and a bit of Pro Tools. Mm. I was struggling a bit for confidence because everybody was kind of moving on to the Pro yeah, it was Tools like thing. The new guard, yeah, exactly. And I wasn't very quick on it. And my thing in my studio that I had with Universal was that I was super quick. I could run an analog console. I could run a session. I could get a session up just like that. Bands would. It was that was the nature of it. And I think having left Universal. Um, I realised that the drinking was, I think what it was, it was play hard, work hard. Yeah, that was like culturally like yeah. exactly it, wasn't it? And that, on the head. that works. And then when I wasn't working hard, the playing hard, it was sudden realisation that, God, all I'm doing is sitting around and having a, you know, it wasn't quite like that, but I would in the evening. And I, st and, I and, mm. and the thing, the realisation for me um, about, apart from uh, people around, well, somebody very close to me telling me that I had a problem with it and me telling her that that wasn't the case. The denial, <laughs> and batting yeah. it away, the denial, we know we've all been there. and Oh, I'm fine. Was the time that I was wasting because it was taking away my creativity. Yeah, and it was the realization, and it's a long battle, but it, you get there in the end. That's really interesting what you said about um, you know the kind of working hard, playing hard, because like the peak of my you know, very high output when I, I think I was working in theatre, and you're doing like stupid fucking hours. Like it's probably similar to studio it, stuff, exactly. And then yeah. I stopped doing yeah. that, but I was yeah. still like boozing the same lit, like amount, and I'm like, 
oh, like exactly, it, it doesn't add yeah. up anymore. No, um, it doesn't work. It just suddenly your life has changed, and you're like, hold on a minute, I'm doing all those bits, but I'm not doing those bits. But the, what the alcohol does do is it keeps you ruminating on the past real good and keeps you in that space. It's like yeah. it's like yeah. a really it's like yeah. a. I kind of think of like alcoholism, like when you're in that kind of negative space, is like the pause on an old cassette tape. So it is paused, but it's just moving real slowly because yeah. it can't quite stop the tape. So it's like it, it just kind of slows everything down and kind of hinders progression and movement. And I think it hinders, yeah, it hindered my progression. And I, you know, it's sudden realization of like um, not knowing how films ended. <laughs> Because you've fallen asleep or <laughs> passed out, and everybody talking about films, and then I suddenly realised every single film. I'm like, I don't remember the end of that. Well, so, and, started, and, and I, in my kid, you know, my daughter, and I had my daughter, and I suddenly realised that. I didn't suddenly realise. I mean, it just went on for a long time, and then I thought it might be a good idea to try and, and and you know, and then I think doing, and that's why I haven't got a bad thing to say about software and what we do now yeah. and because that was the thing that filled my time because that was a difficult time when I gave up and I was like what am I going to do with my and that sounds really sad but what am I going to do with my time you know well sit down and read a book and I'm like that's not for me you know and I picked up my laptop and I was on logic you know I had logic anyway and I thought I know what I'll do I'll make some tracks and then that's where I started doing my sort of library thing yeah so that yeah that and was the switch but that's kind of interesting because you know it's kind of like forced progression but yeah but then the framing is is like you know oh that's happened to me that's negative and but it actually like is probably a blessing do you know what in I thought about because I thought we might talk about this and I thought about I think about it a lot and it's being forced down the rabbit hole and then you come out the other side and you go actually and it's like the college thing you know going to college and I wasn't really for that f interested in learning logic and learning yeah but then you learn that and then you go, oh, actually, that fits because what I want to do fits in with what I want to do. Yeah, it's one of those, I think I can kind of relate to that. I think when all the digital soundboards, because I was very much in the live sound world, mm -hmm. kind of um, 2010, where it all started like really switching over. And like, I had massive fear and I got offered some really good jobs, but they were on um, like the Yamaha consoles. And I was just mm -hmm. like, fucking hell, that I don't know even where to start. And so I yeah. tried to kind of get into it. Yeah. And it actually made it, it made my fear worse. I kind of went up to London. My mate was working at um, uh, that big gay club. I can't remember what it's called. And they do like lots of like mic stuff in there. Right. And they had kind of the Avid consoles in there, which are even harder than the Yamaha. Right. And I looked in and I was like, I kind I of can't... ran away scared. Yes. So yeah, it's interesting that you, I was, yeah, I, I, you know, I, it, it doesn't bother me because I did, I, at the time I was, work, I, when it was, when I was at Universal, I was doing a lot of stuff with Alan McGee was getting me to do a lot right. of stuff. You know, Alan McGee did, he signed Oasis and oh, like, okay. he's, yeah, he's like, and I really love Alan. He signed some amazing artists and I really respect his, he's a real vibe merchant. You know, I only had a little tiny little room at Universal. I had this like little rock. It was very rock and roll. It was brilliant, and I absolutely loved it. And they used to just – it was in the Island Records building and the Universal building, and they used to 
just let me get on with it. I was so much so that I remember talking to somebody at reception and I'd been bearing in mind I'd been there about seven years chatting to somebody upstairs. And I mentioned to them that I was, they said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm working downstairs in the studio. And they said, what, there's a studio here? <laughs> so eight years in, you know, they'd been here like years and they, they didn't, didn't even know, know that there was a studio downstairs. But I was working with Alan and he used to put lots of bands down there and he wanted me to do some, when I lost my job at Universal, he wanted me to go and do some stuff. But I didn't keep up on the socials and... In, engage with him enough to I think you know I think there was a band called Las Vegas he think he wanted me to go and do something with them and do some other stuff that he had in the pipeline and I just didn't you've got you know what it's like you've got to show in you've got to, of course you have you've got yeah, to be I mean, interested you've got to and it, and it was the fear I think that was I was just a bit like I'm not sure I can do this in another room and so I lost the not that I'm not that I'm that you know I don't look back at it and think oh god I wish I, I'd like to I probably should have given it a more of a go, but that was a quite a, kind of a weird time. It always reminds me of the time in the eighties, the mid eighties, when drum machines came in, right? And we had drummers coming into the studio going, Christ, I've got to learn drum boxes. I've got to learn how to program a drum machine because I'm going to be redundant in you know, a few years' time yeah. because they're not going to need drummers. And, of course, it goes in cycles and then drummers come back into fashion and then you get drummers again. And they do, they've gone off and done live gigs and theatre stuff. And so yeah. there's always a way to find, albeit maybe there are, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe there are as many. It's like the studio thing. I'm not sure that, the, I mean, a lot of the big format studios have shut down, but there's hundreds of local little... I think I think this is and- I think this is how it's kind of like people kind of do it now. You know, you've got kind of more like deliverable studios, haven't mm. you? So there's smaller spaces, and yeah. the price has been driven down yeah. a little bit. And yeah. you know, you go in and you cut a vocal drums because yeah. a lot of people are going to be doing it at home. But it's just peculiar because a lot of you know you couldn't get rid of that stuff. Like no. people are like giving consoles away and tape machines <laughs> and like you know, know. Hard- know hardware. And then now the price has gone through the roof and. It, yeah, it's it's a weird time. It's a weird time, but it's like anything. If you're selling like a, you know, a luxury brand, mm-hmm. um, there's a place for it. So there's going to be a place for a certain yeah. group of people that want to go into a place with like a Neve console or, yeah. or this hardware. Want to do a lock in and do it old school. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you can do that, that's brilliant. I yeah. think. I think you've got. I th- the- think a lot of people can't do that because no. of life now. It doesn't work. Yeah, I like the I like the ideal of that. Yeah, a lot, um, but I'm not sure if it works. So, yeah, I think what I'm kind of getting at is like you know that's all moved so drastically, and I think me and you both we've been in situations where we haven't adapted quick enough. Yes, yeah, yes, it, it happens a lot. You know, I remember I think I, I was saying this just the other day. I can't remember what context, but I uh, I was working with 35 mil projectors, and then yeah. Fuji were like, "Yeah, in like six weeks, this is all done." And you're like, what? Like, yeah. yeah, we're not making any more 35 mil film. And it's just yes. like, oh, well, that's done. So that's, and then you go into, at a, yeah, when I was working at ACM, they used to do, um, I don't know if you know Guildford, but there's the cinema there. They used to uh, rent the cinema out to do like their, uh, like, oh, okay. um, they used to They're do live the, the kind of live showcases. things and their yeah. Yeah, showcase yeah. and interview, like, yeah. you know, oh, wow. like engineers and stuff. Yeah. But you go up to like the, uh, 
the projection room and they've got these massive rooms. They would have had all these projectors in it, all these reels, and now there's just this like little digital box <laughs> and there's this massive wasted space. And it's like that literally happened in a blink in the same way. Yeah. You know, I know the tools thing took a yeah. little bit longer because, you know, people yes, are like did, yeah. printing the tape into mm-hmm. tools mm-hmm. and comping in rather than having to cut up. But then when people realise the power and the speed, that's... Yeah, you were like, well, I I know how to do this, and you're taking it away. And- yes, yeah, I, I I think I got into the process of um of do of the tape thing and the drop in drop drop ins, and I just used to love it, and the the way the thought of the console works, and I used to love it, man. I used to really love it, and I don't feel it doesn't psychologically feel as big in pro tools it's psychology it's all psychology it's all yeah. with me it's i know what i'm strange i'm like you know, yeah you're, you're right um, about the psychology because yeah, you yeah, know we know just, now that the emulations are you know that you can't tell the difference ultimately no i mean you some you can with the tape things and i used to get a little bit angsty about that and then i went hold on a minute if people don't know what tape sounds like why have you got a problem with it? Because yeah, what's the gain? Yeah, it's it's just it's what they're used to. If they they're using a bit of software that is a bit that has a tape machine on it, and they're getting something out of it, and they're getting an, an adrenaline buzz out, then it's fine. And then, you know, and it's close. I I don't think there's certain plugins that I don't think are quite there yet. But you know, it's we're talking minuscule sort of amounts i think it's point of reference as well to to a lot of the point as you know so you have you've got a point of reference so like the other day i got um got a couple of like yuri someone built some yuri clone 1176s um and you know the guy said oh yeah i've built it all to like new old stock spec and that and we've got a couple of those universal audio ones i don't i think they're 80s ones looking at the vu i think they're of that era so they're not particularly old but the the Uris, because they're newer, they just they weren't quite spongy and kind of like yeah. messy and smudgy. Yeah. So, <laughs> and but then if you just gave me the, the clones, I would have been like, yeah, that's yeah, cool, they're man. fine. Yeah. It's point of reference, so it's just yeah. I think it you is. can get a bit cool sniffy with it all. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, there's a lot of that. It, yeah, it is. Yeah, because a good way of describing it. But I mean, you know, and I am very into that sort of thing with putting. Um, audio through electronics sometimes you know it's quite funny how years ago we would put we would hire some stuff in you could put you would patch um something i don't know some an audio unit in, in over the mix bus and you probably wouldn't have even had the thing punched in but the the sound of it you still got used to the sort of sound of it and liked the sound of it so it's it's funny. It's you can't always put your finger on it what it is, but you go, I like that. If it's, it's doing something, yeah. yeah. If it, it, you know, it's not. You can't always explain it. It's, it's a tape thing for me. It's even if some of it is placebo, it doesn't. It's kind exactly, of irrelevant. Yeah, placebo's all right. That's if it, you know, if it works and it's making you feel better and it's give, keeping you going. That's with, it. You know, That's so. it. So let's dodge back to so. You know, we've spoken quite a lot, and you did some stuff in Africa, and you worked in uh, was it Paul Simon's studio? It was the the, the stuff in Africa was. Um, I worked with a guy 
um, uh, Ray Peary, who played guitar for Paul Simon, he came in while I was out there. He did an album out there. Um, so, yeah, the, the studio was set up. Um, I'm, you know, I never really got to the bottom where the money of it came. I mean, <laughs> you we probably talk- didn't want to know. No, probably. It was a lot of money and it was an, a most amazing place. I think they spent about 26 million and that was in 1990. Something. So you could probably double that now. Yes, yeah. Yeah, maybe even true. I mean oh. it was it was mad. It was it was silly money, silly studio. Um where was it in Africa? It was on uh, it was in a uh, near a place called Mabatu. Um Mafeking was the near, nearest sort of town. Um it was on the sort of edge of the Kalahari Desert. It was about two hundred I think it's about two hundred kilometers from Joburg. So yeah, it, oh, right, right down. Then I thought, yeah, oh, I thought it was yeah, more like no, in the north. Yeah, but. No, it, and it was, um, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, it was amazing experience. It had, I mean, the concert. It was, it was, it was. When I went and saw it, when I went out there, why I, were you out there? So why were you out there? Why was I out there? I tell you, I tell you what happened. I was, I had a job with Genesis for five years, six years, working in Guildford at their studio, they had a private studio. And I worked there with them and I did about five or six albums with them uh, with on individual pro- projects with them. And um, they, we, I did, we can't, I worked on, we can't dance. And I, that was the last thing. It was probably the last thing I worked with. And they were going on tour. One of their tours is, as you can imagine, a two, three year sort of thing. So I thought, what am I going to do? Because that, that was my sort of bread and butter, really. And they had me on a, I was on a retainer there. And I, I don't know whether they were offering to keep me on it or whether they were going to get other things in the studio. But I suddenly thought, what the hell am I going to do? And I was sat, I remember the night, I was sat with Nick Davis, who's the guy I work with quite a lot down there. He used to produce a lot of their records. And we were sat there getting drunk one night. Back to the drinking. And I was sitting there with Nick sort of having a drink. And I said to Nick, what the hell am I going to do after this? And because he was at other projects. And he, we had a copy of Billboard magazine there. And he had it open in his lap. And he said, I've just found out what you're going to be doing. He used to call me Wolfie. He said, Wolfie, I've just found out what you're going to be doing when you leave here. And I said, what am I going to be doing then, Nick? And he said, you're going to be working here. <laughs> And he pointed at this sort of two-page, four-page sort of double spread or whatever about Bop Studios. They did this whole sort of thing on Bop Studios. And they were putting this studio together in Africa and they wanted some European and American engineers to go out there and work on these uh, in the studios. And I kind of just said, I said, Nick, I'm living in Ningfield. I'm married. I've got a place you know, I, I can't do that, you know, what? I'm, I, and he said, go for it, why not, you know, give it a go, and I did, and uh, he said, it was, you know, this is how far back this was, this wasn't, this was pre-internet, it was, uh, I think he faxed my, or we both faxed my CV off that night to the, to the company, and um, yeah, I got a call, I, I was really weird, I got a call the next morning from a girl in LA, Victoria, bless her, uh, saying, um, Andre's seen your CV and he really likes what you've done. Can you meet him in, he's in London for a couple of days. Can you come up to London straight away? 
yeah, there was there was this phone call. Was, um, Dale, who's the guy down at the studio, was holding the phone up, going, Mark, there's this girl from LA wants to speak to you. So I got, I was like, God, that was quick. It was really <laughs> weird, you know. And um, so I said, yeah, yeah, I'll come up and meet Andre. And uh, she said, yeah, if you can come up to meet him at the hotel in town, meet him. And I met him and he bought me lunch and sat there and chatted. And it was an interview. And I sort of said to him how many people had come for the interview. And he said, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was about five or 600 people. But it was. It turned out it was literally the link with working at the, with the Genesis place and the Phil Collins link. and In the right place yeah. at the right time. And he liked that. And he thought mm. if he gets me out there, it looks great, you know, with clients bringing them out and all the rest of it. And he, he just... I came away and he rang me that that afternoon and he just said to me, Mark, I really want you to come out. And I was like, oh, wow. So, yeah, and I was married at the time and, uh, yeah, my ex-wife, she came and we've she found a job out there. They helped to find a job and we got give, given a place to live and a car and it was great. I mean, it was fantastic. And when I got out there, it wasn't, Half away, you know, you soon learn when you go to Africa that they have an expression called now and now now. <laughs> and it's all about, you know, it's a bit manana. It's kind of, you know, and when I got out there, I realised that the studio wasn't really half built as I thought it was right. going to be. And was it hard? No, because we were put in a hotel. We, You know, accommodation stuff wasn't ready, so we were put in a hotel on... I mean, how hard is that? Sort of, you know, sort of months and months living in a hotel and you're fed and watered and you go to the studio and you hang out and sort of get involved. And it was just great, man. And it was a lovely climate and lovely people. You know, Africa's an amazing place. It was just... I was out there for about two years. So, yeah, it was a big three huge studios. There was a focus right in one. Um, one of the big curlies. Yeah, it was a hundred and I think it might be the biggest, could be wrong, it might be the biggest one they've ever put together or the second biggest. It's about 120 channels. I mean, this thing was enormous. I mean, it was, a, it was a monster. That was Studio One and a room for 120 musicians with a Fazioli piano in it. Studio Two was a Neve uh, VR, smaller live space kind of middle overdubs mixing room how, was, how big was the vr in there 100 and they were all over it was but how are you going to maintain a knee <laughs> like in well, africa because well, they just break all the yeah time. well you know that's that was the thing that was the thing that probably wasn't really that they didn't really sort of it i mean and then there was an ssl that was as big as well so that was that was oh. a, yeah it was just and um and it, it was hard, and we had sort of things like Studer Digital 48-track machines. I'd never... I don't even know if they made many of them. You know, they had these, like... High-tech kind of... Yeah, it was... Wow. All, yeah, so... And, and like you say, it's very difficult to keep that sort of stuff maintained. I think they flew people out to sort of fix them, but it, it sort of... It was, a two, it was two years. We did some sort of stuff out there, and there was a anti-apartheid thing called Serafina that we did that they, we worked on out there and like I say I worked with uh, Ray Perry did 
an album with him. He's a lovely, he was a lovely guy. Um, and a few other sort of, there was a band called Mango Groove. I think they came out and did some stuff. And we used to get some sort of quite interesting sort of African artists turn up with bits sort of, not sellotaped together, but held together with bits of string. And it was just, in, it was just interesting times, man. It was fantastic. It was, uh, it was a, brilliant experience you know that sounds great and before you before you did the thing in africa you said uh you did the kind of genesis stuff so were you working so did did they have a studio in guildford yeah in a place called chiddingfold which is sort of near guildford oh, okay, and it yeah, was, yeah. they they owned a lovely house you know so it was kind of converted house was it it was a house and then they had a bar they had a barn they used to keep all their gear there. i mean the barn there phil was just you know, you would like be on a session and someone say, God, I wish we had a 1960 such and such MOOC with a, and then somebody would go, oh, we've got, well, we've got four of those. Which one would you like? Would you like the, <laughs> it was just, this barn was just full of Phil's kits and Did it have his key, video keyboards. <laughs> Can we talk about Phil's video collection? We can't talk about that. Okay. <laughs> moving forward <laughs> so yeah so it was um it was which is actually the the funny story about that is that um at college my boss my boss there who's who's not there much more anymore steve built this thing called the t i told you about the tp100 do do go on um there was a guy that i used to work with at um Fisher Lane, uh, called uh, this the Genesis place was um, Paul Gomesall, who's a really good engineer. He used to work at Sam a lot and did some great. So he's a really great engineer. And he said that if he if we were working on a session and it was getting a bit late, he would ask me to get the TP one hundred out. And I was always confused about what the TP one hundred. The TP is the turd polisher one hundred. <laughs> so it's code for this session is a pile of poo. And uh, can you go and get the the box that does nothing? So what it, what it's done is it's um, inspired Steve, my good boss at college, to make a TP one. Actually, I think he's made the TP one thousand. Oh right, so it's like an upgraded. It's an upgraded empty box. Yeah, smelly diesel. Exactly. So we just tell the students to sort of turn a few knobs and they're sort of yeah there, there was a similar thing I, I did a i did a tour in kind of kind of early 2000s and uh the monitor guy i won't say what tour it was on he's really well good, good engineer he's done a lot mm. and they had a uh dfa uh, and it was DFA. a rack so they had like a, yes. they had a digico sd9 board yeah. and then he had the um so if one of the like they had a full orchestra there they're like oh yeah can you and he's like yeah yeah hang on implement that <laughs> But they, they had like it looked like a DBX um, one one sixty A. Yeah, the, had yeah, like yeah, all the LEDs, yeah, LEDs on it, and yeah. I was like, "Yes." And he was like, yeah, "It doesn't do anything; just uh, like the yes. lights go on." But yeah, that's the TP one. I love that. Yeah, TP. so the bar, the barn was the studio was great. That had a big SSL in it, and it was a lovely space. It was. Um, we had a really weird, I had a really weird experience down there once when I was working with Tony Banks on 
his album. I used to work on their individual sort of albums, and then which one's Tony Banks? Sorry, I'm not keep, keyboard. Right, I'm not say. very afraid with Genesis. No. I say it's probably it's so, not that it's before my time. It's just like yeah, not, it's just, not on my yeah. radar. Well, yeah, Phil Collins drums and Mike Rutherford, Mike and the Mechanics plays guitar and bass, and Tony keyboards. Um, but yeah, what was re- was a really weird experience was working on Tony's album. So picture the scene: we're out in the country, big window looking out over the fields. I'm sat there with Nick's producing it. I'm sat in the room. Tony's doing a keyboard overdub, and we're looking sort of. I'm looking out the sort of looking out the window, looking at the console and stuff. And from time to time. Balloon, hot air balloons used to go from Hindhead across across the landscape. You could just sort of see in the distance. You could see these hot air balloons sort of be like and shaped. It was quite funny. Hot air balloons like shaped one shaped like an elephant or a fire extinguisher. Or all these like really strange balloons in the distance. And I'm sat there one day, and there's this miles away. I can see this like British gas balloon or whatever it was, or. A, you know, some sort of thing with a thing on the side of it. And I'm thinking, oh, there's a balloon getting closer and closer. And it's getting closer and closer to the studio and Tony's doing his overdubs. And suddenly I look out the window and this thing has landed literally outside the window about 100 yards from the studio. I'm thinking, that's a bit weird. I've never seen any anybody actually land a balloon outside the window. You know, it's crazy. So... I'm sort of looking out and the caretaker from the studio goes out and chats to the people in the balloon. Comes back and I sort of chatted to Dale as he came back in and I said, what's going on out there? And he said, well, you're not going to believe this, but Peter Gabriel has just landed in a balloon outside the window. And I was like, you what? And he said, yeah, that's Peter Gabriel in that balloon. So I walk back in the studio and Tony, Tony looks at me and he goes, what's going on outside? And he said, well, Peter Gabriel's just turned up in that balloon outside. And he said, who told you that? And he said, Dale. And he said, what are you talking about? That's crazy, man. No chance. And I looked around and lo and behold, Peter Gabriel walks past the window and walks in the room. And Peter Gabriel used to be part of Genesis. Yeah. And uh, they hadn't said Tony and... I don't think, I don't know what the history is, but I I don't think they'd seen each other for years, you know. And Peter walked in and shook my hand, shook Nick's hand and uh, put his arms around Tony and went, hey, Tony, I haven't seen you for a while. And, yeah, he'd literally been bought a birthday present, I think, as for a a present, took off in Hindhead and uh, was looking at a map and saw Fisher Lane Farm. And they managed to plot this thing. You're not going to say no to Peter Gabriel, are you? No. Hey, man, no, we can't do that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite funny because he had a, like, an entourage of cars outside the studio. And he said, oh, I've got to fly off because I've got to whiz off somewhere else. I don't know where he was going. And then he jumped in. The, I thought it was all very weird. And we sat there that night all having dinner together going, it was a bit like, did that really kind of happen? It's peculiar. Yeah, so it's quite a peculiar event. But so yeah, it was good times down there. Um it was it was lovely. So yeah, there was a house there so I could stay if I wanted to stay and the the guys the road crew used to sort of come down from time to time and they would all work, they would be down there and we had um 
this guy called Howie. He used to hang out down there. He was quite funny. He used to just sort of like hang out and yeah, it was great. And oh, it, was a, it was a dream job. And I got to work with so many great musicians. I got to work with Vinny Colaiuta. And I'm a drummer, a bad drummer, but I love drums, you know. Mm. I got to work with Vinny, who's a lovely, lovely guy, John Robinson. Um, no, I did sessions with, I did a, did a, track with Nathan East who is a fantastic bass player and an all-round good bloke and just a lovely great energy and love it all those people just really really nice and it's great isn't it when you work with people like that and you go they're just really lovely down-to-earth people yeah makes a difference for sure but they they're with the drums and the stuff you know I always tell James the story about working with Nathan he literally walked in the room and we got a sound and he asked me to just play the track and thank God I put that tape machine in record. <laughs> I always say, I tell James Beckett this story, you know, I, I just literally pressed play and then I went record and I pressed record and at the end of it he played along and that was it. He just said, yeah, that's it. That's all I want to do. I done it. Off he goes. <laughs> it was just that one of those moments where I was like, "God, if I hadn't put that, th- that would have been embarrassing." Yeah, yeah, it would have been a bit embarrassing. But that, that, and that's where you always learn to record everything. As soon as you get in the room and everything's prepped and ready to go, you just record everything because you just yeah. don't know what's going to. It's not a case of right. We've rehearsed that fifteen times, and now we're going to go for a take. You just put the tape machine in record yeah, and just, off you go. Because you'll probably get saying better yeah. when and people's it may not, guard is down, as it were. Exactly. And it may not be, when we say better, it may not be exactly the take 15 was exactly in time, but the one before it had the certain element to it. that you know, Yeah, the vibe or the, vibe, the juice, exactly. yeah, whatever you want to exactly. call it. So, yeah, so I was there for, um, yeah, sort of... Uh, on and off, probably. It's difficult to tell, actually, four or five years, but doing all sorts of things with them. And like I say, they're individual sort of projects. And uh, yeah, got to work with some great, there's some producers. Um, yeah, some really good people came through there. Some It was good times and worked with some on some great records. That's great. And now you're kind of moving more back, well, not back, but you're kind of, you're getting kind of into sync and stuff. Yeah. And once again, you know, you're kind of saying about kind of moving from tape over to tools and logic. It's a, it's a new, it's a new kind of yeah. area of music yeah. to explore and learn, and yeah. it's quite complicated. And it is, it is complicated. I like the speed of it, man. I love bit having on my laptop. I can just bring up logic things that I've done, and they're just it's so instant, and I can flit around, and it's quick and. I can be doing it in my room and I can just bang it on my little USB speaker and then I can listen by it through my headphones. I do love the portability of it. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, it's, it's got, I think, I think regardless, you know, we kind of touched on kind of hardware and stuff and you're a big hardware guy, but, yeah. you know, you the, the recall on hardcore, on, sorry, on hardware is, it's not, it's just a bit drawn out. Now you don't have to do it. Exactly. And that was my job. That Back in the day, that was my job. As a tape op, you had to do a recall on all an SSL. Yeah. You had to do all the outboard gear by writing it all down. And then when they came back in five months' time, 
you have to plug all the patch bay up and get it so getting it sound sounding exactly and we're talking about really great engineers who will hear a pin drop so if anything is slightly out you had to make sure that it was it was right and 99% of the time you get it right and then occasionally there might be that one time when you can't work out what is different but when you think about it on hardware you've got all the inputs that you've got to make note of the presets you've got to go through lexicons and all kinds of stuff to work. so many variables there are so many variables and that was that was the that was the the, the you know and now it's a case of you know pressing save and yeah and even now you know even to the point where you know i know i'm not sure if logic does it yet but you know i know cubase for sure and reaper do do it where you can kind of recall so within your session you can have recall on like fader sets so you can like do like mix oh, okay. one save it oh yeah change all the faders yeah. mixed in so you've got so, like yeah. pallets of, yeah uh, yeah yeah, which is which is even easier because then you haven't got multiples yeah. like v, you know version one point one. Yeah, blah blah blah. Yeah, so sometimes the mo- the options can probably be, but I've got that sorted in my head now. I used to chase my tail a bit with all the plugins because I've got hundreds of plugins, and then now I just realised that I've got some go to plugins that I use, and the others can just. When I've got time, maybe I'll go through an experiment. But at the moment, it's more with me. I think it's more about the creating something quite fast to create, you know, getting yeah. something, get something in, and you're not too yeah. worried about the frills at that point. Yeah, don't, and don't, don't, don't angst over it. It's just See, it's, I get caught because of my like ADHD. I get caught on like getting a sound correct. Then, it, then by the time I fucked around with that for an hour, I'm like, I'm burnt oh, out. I, oh, do I do do that? I still, this is all. So in, this is in my head what I'm, I'm talking to you about. <laughs> this is like the best. We're not talking reality. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still, I'm a faffy engineer. I'm still sort of not happy with anything I do, and I listen to it and I go, oh, that's a lot of crap, and you know. So don't worry about that. Unfortunately, yeah, that kind of goes with the territory, doesn't it? I think it does. I think, yeah, I, I look at some people and I just think, God, how do you do that? They just go, yeah, bosh, 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 that sounds good. But I just, I'm high on the old faffability. Yeah, yeah, I am as well. That's why I kind of have to pass things forward. Oh, and it, I've, I can focus, right. you know, if right. I'm delivering a, mm-hmm. a track to be mixed, I know, or if I'm just mixing so I can focus on that element, but give me two elements and then they both become a little bit shitter because I, yeah, I just haven't got the capacity. Fuzzy. Yeah, just no. don't have the capacity. But no. it's being aware of that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is kind of being aware. And how you work, how what yeah, what works best. Yeah, it is. Um, and I find analy- analyzing can be good, but it can also be a bit weird because you sort of like. You can overanalyze them. Am I over it? You sort of get go around in circles. You get yeah. get caught up in a, you know, the thought process. Was was that track that I did at sort of like three o'clock in the morning good because I did it at three o'clock in the morning and it took me two hours, or is it? Is that just? Do you know what I mean? Is that just coincidence? I don't. I don't know. It's yeah. There's a lot of kind of like preemptive kind of like like internal speak with that stuff, isn't there? Like, yeah. and I think. Uh, yeah, I get like really caught up on that, like yeah. kind of trying to double guess myself. Where really, yes. like, but then <laughs> yeah. I have to, I have to tell myself like, what would this look like if it was simple, and like just strip it back, and then yeah. But when you're when you're in the heat of the moment and you're like, it, you know, it's doom and gloom. It's very hard to yeah to 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 reframe it. 
yeah. like of an instance. So. Yeah, yeah. Cool. This has been the Blood, Sweat and Ears podcast. I'm Phil Bashford. Mark Robinson. Cheers. Cheers.